On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. We've moved to another part of Jerusalem to focus on the holiness of Jesus, or holiness in general maybe, but uh, we've come to some ritual baths. Uh, do explain where we are, Mike, and uh, you know, set the scene. Well, we are sitting on some steps right outside the southern retaining wall of that temple that King Herod built. Now, the wall behind us is not the wall of the temple. The western wall, that famous western wall, is not the wall of the temple. It's part of a huge retaining wall that Herod the Great built to make a huge platform on which he could put his temple. And in our previous episode, we were down at the Pool of Siloam, which in New Testament times was used for ritual bathings. And there was a road that ran straight up here that we've just walked past and that led to where we are now, a flight of steps of enormous width here, running along this 922 feet long southern retaining wall of the temple. Up above would have been the temple platform and the temple itself in the center of it. And these steps were the steps that pilgrims would have gone up to enter into the temple. They would have gone in through one set of gates to our right. They would have come out through another set of gates on our left. And the fascinating thing about these steps, this enormous flight of steps, is that they are irregular and they were designed in that way. So the risers, the height of each step varies between seven to 10 inches. Uh, the depth of each step varies between 12 to 35 inches. That must have made it quite difficult to walk up. Like a normal set of stairs, they're all the same. Yeah, absolutely. And it was designed so that you couldn't run up those steps like you would run up a normal flight of stairs. The idea was that you had to pause and think as you went up those stairs. Why? Because you were about to go up those stairs that continued through these gates under the temple platform and would emerge within that great temple compound up above us where today we can just see the dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque peering over the top in the centre. There's that golden dome of the Dome of the Rock. And, I, you know, you think, imagine you've journeyed from maybe Nazareth or somewhere in Galilee to come down here to Jerusalem for one of the great festivals. You've made that long pilgrimage. You've probably washed down there at the Pool of Siloam and now you've made this final journey and you start to walk up these steps thoughtfully, prayerfully, and you go up and under the walls and suddenly you appear within the courtyard and there, towering right in front of you, about 150 feet high the top of the temple building would be, was this great temple, the house of God here on earth. So this was a place of both excitement and expectation for Jewish pilgrims. A truly holy place, and as you say, the wall even now towers above us. So you would have felt somewhat unholy even approaching it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, remember for Jews, the temple building symbolised everything about God. It was seen as his throne here on earth. 
even the courtyards built around it spoke of holiness. So within the back third of the main temple building was the holy of holies, the holiest place that only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Front two-thirds of the building, the area where the priests could go, the first courtyard around it where priests alone could go and offer the sacrifices. The courtyard beyond that, the courtyard of Israel, and by that they meant the men of Israel, where men could go and bring their animal sacrifices to be handed over to the priests. Outside of that, what was known as the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. So the whole design of this structure was designed to make you think there is holiness right at the heart of this. And there were these whole series of courtyards that you had to go through. And because it was so holy, you had to make sure in New Testament times that you were wholly prepared to come into this building. So you'll have seen, David, as we came here, surrounding us are the remains of a whole number, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, ritual baths for immersing yourself before you went into the temple. Oh, that's what they are. It's not 100% clear, unless you read the signs, <laughs> what, what these are, right. Exactly. They're just like pits dug down uh, into the stone. Um, they're, they're called uh, a mikveh, plural is mikvot in Hebrew. And these were baths that were dug into the natural rock with steps dug down into them and in order for it to be a, a mikveh, the water had to come from a natural source. So you couldn't use a vessel to fill it up. So it could come from a spring or from rainwater, but it had to be natural, sort of God-given water, untouched by human hand, we might almost say. And it had to be big enough for an adult to be able to immerse themselves completely. Uh, you were allowed to have nothing between yourself and the water. So you took your clothes off, you took your jewellery off. Why? Because it was symbolising that the whole of you needed washing clean. So it was a ritual washing that took place. So you couldn't walk into the temple area just as you were? No, absolutely not. You had to prepare. This was a holy God there whose throne was in the back part of that temple. And so you, you just couldn't walk in willy-nilly, we might say. Um, you know, I suppose most of us are, are accustomed to just wandering into church and, you know, we're probably having our conversations or trying to get the kids to settle down or thinking whether we turn the oven on for our meal when we got back home and did we set the timer. And we just tend to walk in very casually, I think, for most of us these days. Some church traditions have you just pause at the gate and perhaps bow to the altar or make the sign of the cross but for the vast majority of churches these days you just go into church and wander in not so here you had to prepare yourself before you could go in so no special clothes needed but you absolutely needed to prepare yourself by these ritual washings before you could go in and there are just literally dozens hundreds of these baths spread all around this area. Because the sheer numbers that would have been coming into the temple area would have required all these ritual paths. Oh, absolutely. Um, thousands would have come. 
Of course, it was here almost certainly that the Pentecost event took place, not in the upper room as has been traditionally thought. It, it just wasn't big enough. The streets were too narrow. You couldn't have gathered thousands of people there. There weren't any baths to do the baptisms that followed. It is most likely that Pentecost took place either right here on these steps where the rabbis used to teach or just the other side of the wall where the royal stoa was, a sort of covered portico area where they also used to teach. And that was just one of those occasions where we get a glimpse into the thousands that came for these festivals because there were thousands converted that day when Peter preached. So, yeah, imagine thousands upon thousands of pilgrims flocking here to Jerusalem for the great festivals and all of them needing to cleanse themselves ritually to, to be able to go in the temple. And hence, that explains the hundreds and hundreds of mikvot that are around here I, I just asked our guide how many there are and he says I don't know there are just so many it's almost beyond being able to count so did God want people to be cleansed in this way before entering the temple area well God certainly wanted people to come into his presence in a right way but you know all these ritual baths and washings were some of those additional rules that had been added there is no doubt in the Old Testament, there are rules and regulations about certain times when you had to ritually wash as a means of expressing that you were clean. But these man-made uh, mikvot that are all around us, there's actually no evidence of them before this period. From an archaeological point of view, um, there's... You know, the evidence shows that, that man-made mikvot really only started appearing from the first century BC, from around the time of Jesus. So this proliferation of mikvot and the proliferation of occasions when you needed to use them was yet another example of the scribes and the Pharisees multiplying the laws of God and the requirements. So what did God expect originally? <laughs> well, do you know what? God did expect holiness. But the thing is, when we go back to the beginning of the Old Testament story, it, it's clear it was a, a quite different holiness to what it had become by New Testament times with all these external rituals. Now, the word holiness in Hebrew simply means different, separated, not like us. So God is described as holy. I'm not like you, I'm different to you. Uh, certainly ethically, morally, in so many different ways. But here's what I find fascinating in the Old Testament. And it is that holiness was a promise long before it was a command. Let me explain what I mean by that. When God led his people out of captivity in Egypt and led them through the desert to Mount Sinai, where he would give them the law, the laws don't start to be given until Exodus chapter 20. But in Exodus chapter 19, God makes a promise to his people. He makes a covenant with them and says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now there's God's promise. He hasn't given a single law yet. But his promise is, 
you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. Not just some who are priests, a whole kingdom. All of you are going to be priests and have the right to come in. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Only then does God go on to make it a command. For example, in Leviticus, which is part of the laws that were given on Mount Sinai, Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Okay, so we've got a command now, but hang on, we've got a promise first. In other words, God reveals to us, this is my heart for you, and I promise you, I'm going to make it possible. Now, now that you are in relationship with me, now that he has made that covenant in Exodus 19, now start living like this. In other words, living in that way was a consequence of salvation, not a cause of it. And that's really important for us to remember, and it will be that that is picked up again and again in the New Testament. I mean, for example, Peter in his first letter, chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it's written, Be holy because I am holy. So holiness is the consequence of being in relationship with God not the condition for being in relationship with God. But by New Testament times, the scribes and Pharisees had sort of flipped that round. It was almost like, you know, well, these are the conditions. You have to do this, 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 and this. You have to wash here before you can go up into the temple. And they had made holiness a condition. Live like this. Oh, and then we'll think about whether God can be a friend. Do you know what? There are still people who think like that today, David. People who think they've got to get their lives right before they can come to church. The number of times I have heard over the years, people say to me who are not yet Christians, oh, uh, you know, I, I just need to get a few things sorted out in my life and then I'll come to church. And I take great delight in telling them, no, 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 you'll never get sorted out enough to come. The church community is the place where you come to start getting sorted out. Why? Because you know Jesus has already dealt with your sin. Jesus has already made you holy through his death on the cross. And as you believe in him and say, Jesus, I believe you died for me to take away my sin, past, present, future, come, forgive me, live within me. He sends his Holy Spirit to live within us and his Holy Spirit now teaches us how to follow Jesus from the inside, not from the outside. Now we start to live that holiness out. We start to live that promise out. But if you wait until you are holy enough to come to God, I tell you, you will be waiting forever. So are you sort of saying Jesus is saying to us, you don't really need to be a holy Joe? Well, he was certainly saying you don't need to be holy Joes like these scribes and Pharisees are who made all these extra rules for what you needed to do in order to be able to come to God. I mean, the whole message of the gospel, as you read the story of Jesus in the four gospels, it is of Jesus coming to people who aren't holy and who know they aren't holy, who'd had a lifetime of this religious lot here telling them they weren't holy and yet saying God loves you 
God wants to be a friend. God loves you just as you are. He takes you just as you are. Come just as you are. Trust in me. And do you know what will happen then? You'll come on a journey with me and little by little, you'll hear my word, you'll hear my prompts within through the Holy Spirit saying, hmm, that could really do with changing, couldn't it? But it is a whole different approach to holiness. It is internal, not external. It is consequential rather than conditional. So where in the Bible do we read about what Jesus said about holiness? Um, well, there's lots of places in the Gospels where there's conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders over this issue of holiness. But one of the places where we get a glimpse into a backwards and forwards conversation between them is in Mark chapter 7. Now, it's quite a long passage, so maybe we'll just break it up into different sections. But let's read what Mark says. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat, unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating their food with unclean hands. And Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So it's one thing for them to be complaining about the way he interprets the Sabbath. Now it's uh, washing of hands. You aren't getting washed properly. Now, look, this is not washing our hands like we might do, you know, before we have a meal. We've been out in the garden, want to get them clean, obviously. No, this was a ritual washing of hands. Actually, uh, I was in the Grand Plaza in front of the Western Wall the other day uh, and was seeing some Orthodox Jews there at washing their hands at washing stations that there are and they fill a cup with it and there's a certain way of they have to pour water over this hand and that hand and there's a particular formula that they have to follow. And the religious leaders here are complaining, not that, you know, hygiene, you're not washing your hands before your meal, but you're not following our religious rules of holiness. Holiness requires you to wash your hands in a particular way before you eat meals. And your followers, Jesus, aren't doing it. And this was just too much for them again. And so Jesus' response? Well, let's read on. He said to them, You've a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, 
Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. So he's giving them an example of their foolishness, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And of how their decisions have actually ended up not heightening the law, but contradicting it. So the one that he gives is it's a bit obscure for us these days, isn't it? But what he's saying is, look, you were saying to mum and dad, mum and dad, do you know what? I would really like to be able to help you out in your old age. And I know I had some money to spare, but actually I'm afraid I've made it korban. That is, I've dedicated it to God. And that means it can't be touched. I love to give you it. I'd love to help you out in your needs, but sorry, it's holy. I've given it to God. And yet, what did the law itself say? Honour your father and mother. And they weren't doing that. So this is one example Jesus is giving of how their desire in their minds to protect the law had actually ended up doing the very opposite. Their rule of holiness had undermined a fundamental expression of holiness, honouring and looking after your mum and dad. So how does he explain holiness from his understanding? Well, let's go on and finish this section, shall we? So Mark 7 there from verse um, 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And after he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods unclean. And then he went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within... Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside. And that's what makes a, a person unclean. So that's a completely different way of seeing holiness. Oh, absolutely. And I love this sort of, you know, very down-to-earth parable that, that Jesus uses here, this picture he uses. He said, look, you know, when you eat food, what happens? You know, you eat, it goes down into your stomach and, you know, we all know what happens. It gets passed on, doesn't it? And what he's trying to show there is stuff that goes into you like that, it, it, it's just going to go straight through you. So why all these religious rituals about, you know, having your hands washed in a certain way before it touches the food? That's passing from you anyway. That's not what holiness is about, Jesus is saying. Holiness is not so much about what goes into you like that. Holiness is about what comes out of you. It's what's there in your heart. It's 
how you live that out. And, you know, he gives some examples which I think are as relevant now as they were then of the sort of stuff that people end up doing. And where does that come from? Well, you know, temptation might come from outside at times, but the decision, the choice to pursue these things, the, the choice to, to be greedy, you know, or malicious, or talk about people, or to engage in sexual immorality, all that stuff that's seen as okay out there in the world, where's that come from, Jesus said? It comes from your heart. It doesn't come from your hands. It doesn't come because you failed to wash your hands ritually in a proper way. It doesn't come because you failed to bathe your body in one of these many mikvot all around us. So he moves the focus from external to internal. But how do you wash your heart good question um jesus said i'm going to send the holy spirit to you who's going to live within you and it will be him who will prompt you prod you when there are things that you know you've done wrong he, he'll touch your conscience we might say and it won't be about external rules Though this is not an excuse for ignoring God's word, of course, because that's one of the main words that he speaks to us. But he'll take God's word and something that you've done and his finger from within will prod your heart and say, uh-uh, that wasn't good, was it? That didn't help you get closer to God, did it? You know, and that's why we need to be careful not to be quick when people are converted, become new Christians and wanting to fix them and give them a long list of things that they've got to stop doing there. I've learned over the years that that doesn't really work and all they do is end up in guilt and condemnation. What I do instead now is start praying, Lord Jesus, would you start showing them that this is wrong? And hey, guess what happens? They just happen to be reading a passage of the Bible that week and then come to me and say, Pastor, I was reading this and I'm realising that I can't go on living like this anymore, can I? And the joy of being able to say, that's right, it's great, you've seen that. Shall we pray together that the Holy Spirit will forgive you for all that stuff and help you to start living in a holy way from within as he both guides you, energizes you and enables you to live in the way that Jesus wants you to live, a way that pleases our holy God in heaven. When you were quoting Peter earlier from one of his letters where in amongst that phrase he says, be holy in all you do. So are you saying you don't go around trying to be holy? No, I think there's a call there from Peter. What he's saying is, look, um, holiness can't be compartmentalised. Holiness is not something that just belongs for religious stuff, Sunday stuff. Holiness is not about, you know, a whole long list of how you were supposed to live now. Peter says rather, you know, be holy in all you do. Holiness is meant to permeate the whole of life. The trouble is with these religious leaders, holiness was so narrow. You know, it was about not doing this and definitely doing that. And the trouble is the gap between their two columns was so huge and they couldn't see it. And Peter's reminding Christians, holiness is for life. Holiness is for everything. There is not an area of life that God doesn't want his holiness to come and permeate and transform. But it happens 
not as you set out to do this by keeping a list of rules, but rather by responding to God's love in your heart and the nudges of the Holy Spirit from within and through Scripture. So as a follower of Jesus today, holiness isn't so much a bar that we're expected to reach. No, absolutely not. It's a goal that we are heading for. And yet it's also a starting line that we start from. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because the New Testament sort of uses holiness in two ways. You are holy, absolutely and completely before God. You are now holy. Why? Because Jesus has made you holy through his death in the cross. And as you trust in that, at that moment, God makes you clean. God makes you holy. And he says then, let's start living that out. Are you grateful then that these ritual bowers near us have been made redundant, really, by the life and teaching of Jesus? Absolutely, because I know myself and I would need to be here, you know, every other minute of every hour on every day because none of us gets to the place where we're what God wants us to be. But I'm so thankful to Jesus that his death on the cross is what has made me holy and that now by his spirit he calls me to follow him each day in that adventure of learning what holiness means, learning what it means to know that God, my Father, is holy, is different, and he himself is empowering me to live differently in this world where he's put me. And so to demonstrate to people there really is a better and more fulfilled way of living. Well, do pray for us just now. Lord Jesus, help us to see holiness not as the condition for getting to know you or getting to know you better, but rather as the consequence of knowing you. So fill us with your Holy Spirit that we will feel his nudges day by day and so be led to make the right choices so that our life pleases you and our Heavenly Father and makes an impact in this world in which we live. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.